0: We, as the NLD, will abide by our promise that we'll continue to work for democracy. And the people must also work with us. It's as simple as that. There are lots of other things, but to put it short, Myanmar, a Southeast Asian country, was ruled by a violent autocratic military regime from 1962 until recent years. The audio you just heard is from Aung San Suu Kyi, elected president there in 1990 in the first democratic election that they had in 30 years, but was subsequently not allowed to rule, being confined to house arrest. She continued to carry out her struggle for democratic rights, being awarded a Nobel Prize for her efforts towards peace. Since 2010, the transition to democracy in the country has been cheered throughout the world. However, home to more than 135 different ethnic groups, The recent democracy of Myanmar still seems to carry traits of its violent past. For the past few years, the Rohingya people, an ethnic minority living in the Western Rakhine state, has been violently repressed by the government forces. Rape, torture, and death have all been internationally denounced. Thousands of Rohingya people have fled to neighboring Bangladesh. The United Nations defined it as an act of ethnic cleansing. Aung San Suu Kyi, who became Myanmar's civil representative in 2015, has been denying the genocide accusations our country is facing in the International Court of Justice. I don't think there's ethnic cleansing going on. I think ethnic cleansing is too strong an expression to use for what's happening. The Myanmar context made us wonder, can a national peace education curriculum be implemented and have a positive impact in such a turbulent national context. This is Conversations from the Leading Edge, a podcast featuring interviews about extraordinary advances in the area of peace and conflict studies happening at or around Columbia University, Each month, we feature interviews with scientists and thought leaders who are conducting groundbreaking work aimed at managing conflict constructively and sustaining peace, both locally and globally. And now for today's show.
1: Hi, welcome, I'm Rachel Kirk and I'm your host for this episode. Today, we'll be talking to Felisa Tibbetts. She's a lecturer in the International Education Development Program at Teachers College here at Columbia University and Chair in Human Rights Education in the Department of Law, Economics, and Governance at Utrecht University. Her research interests include peace, human rights, and democratic citizenship education, including curriculum policy and reform. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure, Rachel. Thank you for the invitation. You're a reference in peace and human rights education, and you've done a lot of different projects related to that in many contexts. Today we're going to talk about one of your most recent activities, which was to propose a roadmap for Peace and Sustainable Development National Curricula Framework in Myanmar can, um, that you did last June. So let's start with the basics. How are you defining peace and how are you defining sustainable development when you think about curriculum? Good
2: questions. Um, in the field of values-based approaches that I work in, which includes peace education, human rights education education for sustainable development and global substance of education among others, there's always the question of what, how do you find that, define them individually and also how are they interrelated when we think about a holistic view of our world being one that is just peaceful and sustainable, let's say. So there are, especially in the area of peace education, there are theorists that have been working a really long time to define what peace means and what peace education might look like. Some of the um, the well known theorists are Betty Reardon, who used to teach at Teachers College, actually, okay. and Johan Galtung. And so my own definition of peace education really comes from, especially Galtung's original distinction between positive peace and negative peace. And I want to explain what that means because it's actually really relevant also for Myanmar or any other national context where they're thinking about the schooling system contributing to peace. Um, so negative peace and positive peace are linked with notions of violence. And a very simple idea of thinking about peace and peace education is its goal to reduce violence as in active conflict, hot conflict, interpersonal violence. And that's a certainly very worthwhile goal, of peace education. But a deeper holistic um, understanding of Peace is, looks at the root causes of violence, and those conditions can be ones, for example, of structural violence, of ongoing discrimination and inequality that can result in insecurities and destabilization in societies, not to mention suffering, that leads to active interpersonal violence and other kinds of emotional psychological violence. So peace, um, as Gao has defined, it includes notions of both positive peace, meaning addressing underlying conditions that result in hot conflict and violence, as well as, you know, skill sets that help to reduce interpersonal violence. And, um, and, that's, and so peace education can therefore incorporate goals to address both those kinds of violence and strategies for those which can be very diverse including everything from conflict transformation skills that you could use in schools to reduce bullying, for example, to uh, strategies to to promote um, inclusion, tolerance, um, or thinking society-wide root causes of inequalities and looking at maybe historical discrimination against certain groups. And some of this is, of course, very relevant for Myanmar, but many other countries as well. Sustainable development has its own kind of history. Um, If you look at the education for sustainable development, which kind of emerged, I think, most strongly in the last 20 years, it was preceded by environmental education. Now, peace education kind of had its roots in the Cold War, so that takes us all the way back, you know, to the 50s, so there's been time for theory development. Education for sustainable development hasn't had quite as much time in ESD, but he has really come to the fore as we've become more aware of the environment and needing to take care of the environment, and then environmental justice, and then increasing recognition that humans have had a a deleterious effect, of course, on its environment, and biosystems and climate change is kind of the icing on the cake of this big problem. Mm -hmm. So, Education for Sustainable Development, the... The definition I really like, which I'm actually going to read to you, is coming from the World Commission on Environment and Development. It says here that sustainable development is development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Mm-hmm. And this involves not only basic needs like food, water, shelter, and clothing, which is kind of the basic needs approach, but also if you look at Sen, who talks about human capabilities approach, it also includes other kinds of freedoms such as uh, freedom for development, political freedoms, social opportunities, and so forth. So these definitions suggest that peace education and sustainable development kind of, well, they have different roots in, in history and in our, on our planet, but they're actually quite interrelated now in two ways, if I can share that. Yeah. One way is if we think about the sustainable development goals Uh, which I hopefully some of the listeners to this program are familiar with. (laughs) They succeeded the Millennium Development Goals and Sustainable Development Goal 4.7, which is one of the array of goals specifically focused on education, actually has as a goal education for sustainable development. Um, That definition is not actually as narrow as the one that I just read to you. It, in fact, is an umbrella that includes, for example, peace education, human rights education, and others. So, um, but in our conversation today, I'm gonna to be treating education for sustainable development as a kind of unique approach, rather than this umbrella term that's being used politically with the SDGs right now, just to be clear. But sustainable development and peace really have, um, you know, they're really inter- they're easy to see as interlinked. Um, if you think about what's happening in, in the environment, for example, as a form of violence. You know, it's not just interpersonal violence, it's violence against the environment and as a consequence of our mistreatment of the environment. There are consequences for all life on the planet, including human life. When we think about what's going to be happening with dislocation and climate change, and mass migrations that are anticipated, and challenges for stability, peace, and human rights, we can easily see that these would be related. So this is a definition that was proposed in the context of the project I did in Myanmar, because I hadn't really worked on these together. So it was a learning experience for me, Education for Peace and Sustainable Development empowers learners to take informed decisions and responsible actions for environmental integrity, economic viability, and a just society for present and future generations, rejecting violence, respecting diverse identities and cultures, and living together peacefully. And I think that kind of pulls it together really well. Obviously, super aspirational, right? <laughs> but you kind of, especially when you work in curriculum development, you know, you kind of want to get the the goals right, the kind of definitions there. And then you you break into it. What does this mean in terms of competencies? What does this mean in terms of teacher teaching and learning processes? What does this mean outside the classroom for society? So
1: that's kind of where I started with this project and my thinking in this area. Great. Um, So what are some tangible outcomes of this type of curriculum? Well, in other contexts, indeed, we have had a lot of experience
2: in peace education in in national contexts, although we also find fabulous examples of peace education, you know, right here in New York City and in schools where teachers or individually or as a whole get really interested to use peace as a kind of values framework. For example, there's... Sometimes it comes, to be honest with you, peace education in the school is setting as a response to a problem like bullying, right? Mm-hmm. And so there needs to be become kind of a clear values framework that shows respect for physical integrity, inclusion in the school environment, mutual respect, we're moving across all people in the environment. And you can see fabulous peace education curriculum completely under the radar of state and national curriculum and national curriculum, right? Um, so I just want to say that, and there's lots of really nice articles um, around those kinds of programs. That I, know, I teach a course in, in peace and human rights education in um, international contexts, and I try to use examples that are small scale to show how that can work. And at the same time, to answer your question, what he said, there certainly have been national attempts to really push peace education onto the na- into the national curriculum as a, a real goal and vision. And that um, different contexts produce that and it shows up differently. Um, so, before I give you those examples, I kind of want to emphasize that peace education, like these other values based approaches, including ESD, Education for Sustainable Development, or Human Rights Education, or Global Citizenship Education now is a new discourse we're hearing. All of those have to be really localized. There's a range of competencies that are potentially going to be relevant for a local environment, and it's up to stakeholders, including not only ministries of education, to my mind, but also teachers, students and their families, other stakeholders like civil society organizations and other other people who are invested in how young people are learning about peace because they are going to be the future peace builders, peacemakers, and obviously citizens in society. So there's no formula. The goals of, you know, this definition I just read to you is the beginning point. And then, um, as I did actually for the Myanmar work I did there, I mean I collated, you can collate a list of potential competencies, and competencies, by the way, just to explain, competencies are a little bigger nugget than an individual learning outcome, such as a single skill or a single content knowledge or behavior. A Competency is basically learning that happens which can incorporate a values component, let's say, maybe some experience, maybe some knowledge, that predispositions and readies you to actually apply these capacities. So competency is a kind of readiness to apply what you've learned, but it's a kind of composite. Whereas learning outcomes, which is what you're more likely to see in in, uh, very specific subject curriculums, would be very specific content knowledge, like understanding different definitions of peace, which I just mentioned to you or having knowledge about some of the environmental challenges for our day um, but competencies can be a bit broader so you have a list of competencies from different curriculum that have been developed for peace or education for sustainable development you have different competencies or teaching and learning outcomes specifically more broken out also available we have really good country examples for esd from australia we have a good examples from sri lanka We have peace education, good examples from Kenya, also the Philippines, and each of those environments had a very specific political and historical environment that related to their wanting to do this. In Kenya, for example, after post-election conflict um, over a decade ago, and it's been recurring, unfortunately, in Kenya, there was a really high level decision taken outside of the Ministry of Education, but implemented by the Ministry to try to infuse peace education, both in the formal schooling system and in the non-formal education system, to try to focus on coexistence between different groups in Kenyan society. So um, the language was what language of coexistence, acceptance of diversity, um, so on the one hand you had that, through the curriculum different ways, and at the same time you had to focus on unity through diversity, which you often find in post-conflict environments, and this is not just specific to Kenya, by the way in terms of peace education, is wanting to do two things at the same time, which kind of can have a tension. On the one hand, wanting to have a focus on unity, through we are Kenyans, you know, we are one, we are Kenyans, even if we're coming from different tribes, even if we speak different languages. And that's a really powerful message, an important one for ministries of education to play out. And at the same time, you don't want to make invisible differences, because you want to you know, you want groups to know about each other, especially if they're in certain groups, you know, that have been uh, have been repressed in the in the past and discriminated by governments. So you want to have that kind of acknowledgement. At the same time, that you want to kind of you want to create a new idea of unity through Kenyan citizenship. So it's a very complex process. And in the Philippines, where there's a strong uh, peace education curriculum, is actually required by constitution i believe really strong went through teacher training um got into the curriculum and again it was working for uh it was was a post dictatorship period at that time many decades ago so human rights violations have been really documented quite a lot in the last years but there was a very strong a top-down attempt working with non-governmental organizations to implement it there so um and i am stopping there because if we were to look at what sri lanka did in also in a post-conflict environment, Kenya and the Philippines. I could just say, before I came to teach at Teachers College, I worked full-time in the civil society sector, so I still see myself as having one foot firmly planted in civil society and the, and the grassroots work. And so I want to take this opportunity to actually recognize that a lot of what we're seeing in peace education and ESD and its predecessor, environmental education, came from movements. They came from the peace movement, and they came from the environmental movement. And those movements began in public education, and they eventually found their way into the schooling system. So credit goes a lot to the impulses to address real problems in society, like Cold War issues, uh, problems of nuclear armamentation, which were the origins of peace education. Originally it became much more diverse after that. And environmental education came again with the environmental movement. There was a time when, here in the United States, we didn't have the Environmental Protection Agency. You know, it's under duress now, but there was a time we didn't have it, where, you know, waters were in, in public areas were being polluted and, and not monitored properly, and it's quite remarkable to think about the problems they've come to, but also how successful, ultimately, that environmental education movement
1: was. Okay, so you've kind of talked a lot about the promise and the challenges of this at a national and international level, but what does this sort of look like on an everyday curriculum Mm -hmm. basis? Yeah, it's a really great question for
2: education for sustainable development in particular because we are facing such extraordinarily challenging times. and. you know, I looked, in order to be working in the Myanmar project, I really looked as well I could. And other work, actually, I've done with Global Citizenship Education for UNESCO, I did look for good examples of ESD. And mostly what I found were good examples in education, um, for just environmental education. And Australia is a great example of that. Um, to your question, the, when you look at environmental education, then it's really straightforward to be looking at you know your school environment, the environment around you, know, directly in your community. Thinking about projects, cleanup projects, for example, and um, also some behaviors like fair trade and um, and uh, you know consumer behavior. I think those are very actionable things. The larger problems that we are getting so much attention to now. You know, think about our Times Person of the Year now, Greta Thunberg. I mean, it's amazing having this interview now because so much has been happening and you know the activism that, that youth themselves have been bringing to the fore because of their their lack of confidence in politicians to address this issue. So the ESD in schools can incorporate, I think, very easily what environmental education has already been doing with action projects, obviously actionable projects related to, again, the environment, cleaning up the environment, consumer behavior. Even education in the school setting or other community members about what they can do to you know, to be um, responsible citizens. A teachers College, you know, we're trying to become a green university there, hoping to get rid of plastics use in the dining hall. Every bit counts. So even if there are these larger problems that we just want to stay on top
1: of, even in ESD, there are actionable things that schools can do. So with this type of education, is it typically within subject courses, or in its own course, or in projects through the school? What does it kind of look like as far as how the school can implement it?
2: Yeah, great. That's just what I was um, what I was getting to. You know, it depends on the uh, schooling system. In Australia, for example, environmental education was a course that was offered, I think, a couple of times beginning in middle school. Environmental education has a very natural home in the sciences. So. In earlier grades, um, you can be integrating it into natural sciences, biology, and then, depending on the national curriculum, you might get more attention to it later. In general, in peace education, because it's very, you know, again, there's different choices one can make about what frame to take in a particular schooling environment. You can see it linked up with social-emotional learning. You know those foundations that begin at the primary school level when you're dealing, helping young people to um, uh, uh, become aware and confident in themselves and their own voice and their ability to express their points of view, to listen well to others respectfully, to recognize, see, and enjoy diversity, um, and you know to um, maybe learn anger management skills so they can also deal with difficult moments in a peaceful way, that's sort of foundational for primary schools and you can move that into something more explicit through life skills education in some countries, health education later on, but peace education is something that can be dealt with transversely in a number of subjects including uh, literature when you're dealing with ethics, Mm -hmm. uh, in the social sciences or history when you're dealing with difficult past some countries, internationally, regionally, nationally when there's been conflicts understanding root causes. History education can be very important for dealing with those issues. Um, and uh, even the arts, which is a wonderful way of thinking of, you know, using your moral imagination to think about how the world might be. And that's also for ESD and So there are ways in which you can use a curriculum either through key subjects and or what's called transversally, which are key themes or values that you can be picked up in many different subjects, not just one, but then there's also something called the whole school approach. And these are not mutually exclusive, where you're really focused and you need leadership here, strong leadership from headmaster's principals with the school on board as a whole, teachers, and hopefully also families, where there's going to be a commitment to a culture of peace, a culture uh, that respects education for sustainable development, so that you can look outside teaching learning processes. As important as those are, as important as those pedagogies are, by the way, for moving young people into taking action, and think about what actually happens day to day in the corridors of the school. Is there mutual respect? Are there um, opportunities for kids in out-of-classroom clubs or other experiences to get out into the community and do something? Are you bringing people into the school to address kids um, in the classroom or in you know, maybe in town halls to talk about issues of the day. So there's a multitude of ways to possibly be addressing peace ed and ESD and kind of the more the merrier.
1: Okay, so based on what we've been talking about, it's clear that peace education and education for sustainable development is very important and relevant to foster peaceful relations in any society, but also particularly in countries that might be experiencing conflict. However, I can also imagine that some of these contexts might be a little bit more resistant towards peace education as well. So I think it would be really interesting to learn more about your recent project in Myanmar, since it's a good example of working to promote peace education in a conflict context. So let's uh, unpack this a little bit more. So this was an initiative through the Myanmar government, right?
2: Right, um, UNESCO, uh has been working with the Ministry of Education in Myanmar for many years, um, primarily in the area of education for sustainable development. They have been, as I understood, I learned, they had been doing some school level work with them and had developed a very good relationship with the Ministry of Education. Um, As you may know, the peace processes um, in Myanmar have been ongoing. We've, of course, been hearing about the Rohingya. Massacres and ongoing conflict there, um, and at the same time in other areas of Myanmar, peace process. The peace process has been ongoing, so it's that's a very complex area. Um, just to say, in terms of uh, of a peace, the peace process is what's working and what's still clearly unresolved, including the Rohingya, the Rohingya crisis. In um, in earlier this spring, I was approached by UNESCO in Myanmar and they told me that they um, had a good relationship with the Myanmar Ministry of Education and that the ministry was interested to do, um, to consider integrating education for sustainable development and peace education into their national curriculum. And the timing is such that Myanmar is actually in the process of uh, undergoing a, a very thorough curriculum reform. So basically all the curriculum has been looked at. It's a multi-year process. It's, uh, now it's been a few months since I've been there, but I believe it's a five to seven year process cool. where they began with the primary school level going all the way up uh, through secondary school. So they're they're looking at all the subjects. So it's actually it's a prime time, obviously, to be thinking about introducing these themes of ESD and peace Ed. So UNESCO asked me um, to work with them and the Ministry of Education, in doing two things, which is the basis of what I can present to you today. The first was to, um, to present in preparation for a policy seminar, uh, which was going to be focusing on a potential curriculum roadmap for the Ministry of Education to consider as part of the curriculum reform process, to do what would be co- what, what they call a briefing paper. And that briefing paper actually looked a little bit with what I like I just presented which is definitions of peace ed, and education for sustainable development, Uh, how countries and other places have approached it, Mm -hmm. thinking about competencies, getting clear competencies, fusing these together, possible, you know, kind of a long list of possible learning outcomes that the Myanmar stakeholders would have to decide upon. I did not advocate any particular learning Mm -hmm. outcomes. Different approaches, which I also mentioned just now, you know, specific dedicated subject, Several key subjects, transversal approach. So I did this kind of overview in the briefing paper, to kind of give a lay of the land from outside of Myanmar for them to be, for them to be thinking about in
1: this policy seminar. What are some aspects of this form of education that's specific to the Myanmar context, then?
2: Well, the briefing paper that I did um, was presented at the policy seminar. We had at the policy seminar over 80 representatives, including all the Deputy Directors of the Ministry of Education, the Minister himself stayed for the whole morning, which was very positive, not to say politically. Yeah. Um, we had a lot of community service organizations there and teachers and schools. So it was a very diverse group. And that also reflected the people I spoke with once I was on site, because I did the briefing paper on the lit review. And once I arrived, I met with the Minister for an hour and a half, met with all the Deputy Directors and tried to get an understanding about where the ministry was coming from in terms of their existing projects and frame for peace and ESD, and also to speak with people in the grassroots level who've been doing some work. So I definitely got different kinds of perspectives to say. We were collecting information from the ministry, and the options paper, which I finished it's my final piece of work for them, pulled together everybody's input. It was an intense process, but to the credit of UNESCO and the Ministry of Education, they wanted input. And I know UNESCO's perspective, and mine as well, you know, at Teachers College is inclusion, keeping the critical perspective, local actors make the decision. So you know, you pull together, you know, examples, you've got evidence-based literature that shows certain kinds of peace education works well, for example, them you know that UNESCO have been working in some Myanmar schools, and they know which ones already, which ESD projects they have kind of gone well and why were some problems as well. So so in the end, um, the I have many, many recommendations. Uh, one of them, which I want to put up first, because I want to emphasize that this is a decision that still needs to be made or is in the process of being made in Myanmar. Uh, the Ministry of Education, well, I recommended, and I don't know if they took it up, was to, to basically to establish something called an education for Planning and Peace and Sustainable Development Coordination Committee. A committee that would include key actors from the Ministry of Education, schools, teachers, and some of the key NGOs that have been doing work already in Peace and ESD. Cross fingers that that it would be inclusive. Because there was already a group, a loose coalition of NGOs in Myanmar already have been doing peace education at the grassroots level in some of those difficult areas. What a lot of great experience. Um, that, and good ideas and examples that could be used in schools or working in partnership with schools if the ministry created the space. What I really want to mention to you was what I heard when I was interviewing the Ministry of Education, well actually the minister himself actually, and I want to emphasize that there was incredible political will in the Ministry of Education to do PSAT and ESD now. At the end of the policy seminar, there was a lot of relief and optimism on the part of not only UNESCO, but the community service organizations, the CSOs had to have been doing this work, because they felt pretty much in isolation. So the Rohingya issue, notwithstanding their spaces, their spaces for work to, move, to, to be moving forward in peace at an ESD, perhaps not in a way that some of us might consider complete, but but would be making important steps. But what I found, getting back to the Ministry of Education point of view, which I think is very interesting and illuminating, is that when I asked the Minister of Education about his views on peace education and ESD, I think, what and he described what they were already doing, which is very promising, by the way, I would put these strategies, these important strategies, inside a category slightly different than Peace Ed. I would put them inside the categories of education for peace building. So the kinds of strategies that the Ministry of Education is going to implement, on the one hand, is to make sure that, that children and youth living in those areas, remote areas that historically, for example, have not re- had government schools, they've been rural, they've been indigenous, they haven't had lots of resources from the national government, they may not even have had involvement in the national curriculum to really up-resource those schools and to bring them more into the fold of the national curriculum so that they would be no they'd be less you know they would be upskilled in general and they would be better integrated um, which is no small commitment and it's a it's a a genuine one the other super important curriculum decision that's taken now as part of this larger curriculum reform effort is to create a space for local curriculum in the first years of schooling and to allow mother tongue instruction. In these border areas especially, where schools were separated, they weren't government schools now, mother tongue instruction is validated. It's gonna be supported for a number of years. Moreover, they're now gonna have something called local curriculum. The schools can decide for themselves if they wanna be learning about local culture or if they wanna be learning about technical skills relative to maybe indigenous or local handicraft works, what have you. Could be local language, so it will be some some autonomous kinds of curriculum that will allow for local choice and diversity, but intended to elevate the again uh, local ways of knowing. So that's really important, and local culture and local history through the local curriculum. So those are some very key curriculum changes that are already going to be implemented. And I might mention that in the policy seminar that we had, some of the concerns that came out from the group that were reflected but that this peace-building approach has to be linked with non-discrimination. It has to be linked with safe schools. I mean, safe schools when there's diversity in the schools, but also safe schools and environments where schools are being attacked because there's still schools that are not safe. And so a lot of this lifts up to really wider issues in terms of quality education in those areas where there have been historically there have been conflicts. So, part of the peace building process is just delivery of good education to these mm-hmm. schools. But the ministry's eyes were on these larger I mean, right now, or at that time, the summer, was on those kinds of things.
1: So, you're saying that the Ministry of Education has a lot of like political will to um, focus on these amazing curriculum aspects, and it seems like a very promising reforms that they want to implement. Was there any uh, tension at all um, between the different stakeholders? throughout this process when you were kind of facilitating this? No, I I would say uh, that I did not.
2: And I'll tell you, when I first arrived and I was having conversations with the ministry and then I was meeting, because UNESCO has, of course, contacts at the grassroots level and also at the ministry, the civil society organizations I was meeting with were working on very creative projects, for example, making available storybooks in indigenous languages Mm. for young children in these, say, remote areas who, A, might not have access to textbooks and, B, if they did, they wouldn't necessarily be in languages of the, their mother tongue as one example that you could see related to, obviously, peace building and also peace to some extent, depending on how you define it. So there was a lot from the civil society grassroots um, angle. I got a lot of wonderful examples of these very discreet, powerful mm-hmm. ideas, storybooks, of uh, working on interpersonal conflict transformations in environments where there have been interpersonal conflicts and wanting to address also the difficult political issues right so and those NGOs have a lot of experience on uh, with skill building that would be super relevant for peace education in the schools. Um, I think and you heard what the Ministry of Education frame was mostly peace building oriented. With the exception of a few deputy directors who had been working directly in projects like with UNESCO or with international donors, small projects on peace building or ESD, uh, where they had, or where they've been working mostly in the non-formal education sector, even in view, in view involving some of those community groups. So there were some people in the ministry who had been working at with the grassroots level with partners um, who resonated they're thinking with the civil society organization's way, but there was a kind of, just a different, different kind of visions, I think, by and large, between civil society and the ministry at that point. But there was no (coughs) disagreement. I mean, if I had to guess, uh, I mean, working with governments, I think it would be, I would be very surprised if any of the Rohingya issues were to be able to be mentioned in schools. So, I mean, I think it's going to be left to the Ministry of Education, what, if and when, how much to actually address that or not, that would be a sensitive issue. And I think right. personally, I would be, I was so pleased with the ministry's openness. Honestly, everyone was delighted uh, with their openness and interest. And I felt it in every conversation I have because people want peace. You know, so. we hear about the Rohingya crisis, people want peace.
1: You and know? then were there <laughs> any um, teachers or students present throughout? These meetings. Is there a kind of difference between what their perspectives were and what government perspectives were?
2: Well, I met some headmasters who'd been trying to do peace in their schools, again, using whole school approaches. Again, thrilled that if it's in the national curriculum, it validates their efforts and helps them to also be an example that can be lifted up. Same with civil society organizations. So, in the discussions in our policy seminar, because most of the day was small group sharing. You know, we just had a lot of reality checks, like, it's great that we're going to work with curriculum, but let's make it easier for teachers to collaborate with NGOs and community-based groups so they can come into schools, because that doesn't happen naturally or often, right? You know, sometimes schools can be closed. Let's help to push a whole school approach, community partnerships that kind of thing. So yeah, no, everybody was on board. They just wanted to make sure that the real problems, like even teachers who might have discriminatory attitudes, Mm -hmm. would be addressed. So, you know, when it gets down to the nitty-gritty, curriculum reforms will open up spaces in schools and then you need supports, then you need teacher trainings, then you need good resources, right? Then you need good examples that are already out there, say, from the NGOs that have been doing work, or then the government has to do even more And have it integrated into some of these potential subjects.
1: Okay, so it seems like this is very promising and that there was a lot of really good energy and high spirits around the prospect of more systematized peace education, but did the Rohingya issue come up at all during this process? The Rohingya
2: issue was, it was in some ways the elephant in the room in the policy somehow. It certainly came up when I was having my discussions with civil society organizations, because they were working in conflict areas. Right. And it's also the case that some of the civil society organizations, but not all of them, the government is willing to work with, mm-hmm. because some of the civil society organizations have been more overtly critical of government response right. in dealing with this issue. So that was part of the delicacy of the work,
1: It seems like there's been a lot of movements to promote more inclusion for the various um, levels of diversity and ethnicities in Myanmar. However, the Rohingya population has been isolated throughout these movements. Do you think that some of these policies from the Ministry of Education and within schools could potentially address this isolation or that it would kind of remain Mm-hmm. Separated.
2: I think that the policy solution that the government has, the Ministry of Education, who, by the way, I want to protect in their work doing this, is to be able to carry out these peace building kinds of reforms, including PSAT and in ESD, in not only the schools they've been traditionally working in, but the ones they want to welcome in, who are part of the peace process. So the schools that are still not, you know, positioned to participate in these wonderful reforms that have been proposed are those that are not in the peace process yet. So it's out there still for those communities who are still, even if they're not Rohingya communities, who are still not in to, once those, and hopefully those political, um, those political challenges, those differences get resolved once they're in the peace processes and the conditions are such that they want to be part of them then they can become part of, of, in the medium or longer term, these new policies. The Ministry of Education can't do more than that. They have to work within the frame of the peace processes. Within those frames, they're doing a lot. With uh, Sun Key's Ki's testimony, ICJ, we're not seeing any kind of admittance. That there's been you know wrongdoing on the scale that the international community is claiming. We have now new problems, refugees in Bangladesh, so this seems like a long, long process. How countries are able to move ahead in peace building and peace ed when these are unresolved, not only peace processes but human rights process you know right. dilemmas is is a is a, is a conundrum. And I would say that as a pragmatist, I feel it's important. To move forward as one can. I do believe and hope that if we're, if you move into a curriculum where you're able to discuss these topics, it's not like there's a, a news freeze on what's happening in other parts of Myanmar. There's distortion, there's denial. <clears throat> I believe that it will be
1: discussed. So let's unpack that a little bit more. So what um, types of i know you said that this process just with the ministry of education alone um reshifting the curriculum will take five to seven years which is quite long and then this conflict seems like ongoing and that it will be a while before there's Mm -hmm. deeper resolution but what kind of outcomes do you visualize this process that you've Mm -hmm. been starting and this type of curriculum having over the next few years
2: Mm -hmm. Well, the, the, the curriculum reform process is now a few years in. and aside from the, the reforms that I've mentioned the ministry is already implementing, including the local curriculum piece there, the outcomes of the policy seminar and the paper was the recommendation that they pulled together this kind of, I think it's, I call it this um, steering committee, coordination committee, Inclusive to look over all the recommendations I had. The recommendations included competencies and specific learning outcomes that could be then used as a framework for infusing into individual curriculum or separate curriculum. The local curriculum, by the way, it's 15%, I hear that's what it's called 15% local languages, culture, and history. From the policy seminar and conversations, certain subjects, Myanmar stakeholders themselves said these are the ones we could look more closely at. Um, And so my recommendation, and I hope this coordination committee organizes it, would be that they look to see in the existing curriculum, or the latest version of the curriculum for morality and civics, how they can infuse that with, you know, getting along um, peace, transformation, avoiding conflict, In the history curriculums looking at the history of diversity and coexistence, life skills here looking at positive behavior social emotional learning um, in language learning lifting that up into interculturalism in geography looking at the history of groups within and outside the territory of myanmar and the sciences obviously that's a natural for looking at the knowledge and respect for the national environment so these are existing courses that already you know you could just do a a simple curriculum mapping to see if these themes are addressed if not how it could be introduced, or if they are, how it could be strengthened also reflecting those pedagogies, So I mentioned before. So my hope is that there will be a curriculum review that will result in very specific recommendations.
1: Great, that sounds very complicated, but also very promising and very enlightening. And it's been really interesting learning about this process and all the different stakeholders' involvement, and let's be hopeful for what the power of peace and sustainable development education can bring to me in life. Indeed. Thank you so much for being here and for speaking with us about this process.
2: My pleasure, Rachel. Thank you so much for the invitation.
0: The music for this show was written and composed by Kevin Johnston and is titled Kingdom Stowaway. Peter T. Coleman, and I'm coming to you from the studios of WKCR at Columbia University. This show is sponsored by AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at the Earth Institute at Columbia University.